Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Sunday, February 4th, day 121 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel Dan here with our Arab Affairs reporter Luca Pacchiani and reporter Kanan Lidor. Hello to you both. Good morning, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Luca spoke with a foremost Israeli expert on the relationship between Israel and Egypt. We'll hear why it's strained. We'll also hear some reasons why Hamas leaders are at odds over the proposed hostage release deal. Kanan was recently in Kfar Aza with a couple who have moved back. We'll also hear about Israelis rescuing, or is it looting, animals from the Gaza Strip. All this and more when we're back. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. First, some headlines. Air raid sirens sounded this morning in Kibbutz Manara in the Upper Galilee next to the Lebanon border. The IDF said troops raided a building in Khan Yunus used by a senior Hamas commander as fighting and strikes against the terror group continue across the Gaza Strip. A spokesperson for Yemen's Houthi rebels said following strikes by the U.S. and U.K. forces on Saturday that, quote, we will meet escalation with escalation. Either there is peace for us, Palestine and and Gaza, or there is no peace and no safety for you in our region. The IDF announced Sergeant First Class Shimon Yehoshua Asulin, a 24-year-old resident of Beit Shemesh, was killed in battle Saturday. He is the 225th soldier to have been killed in Israel's ground operation in Gaza. Luca, in 2005, Egypt and Israel signed the, quote, Philadelphia Agreement, which basically stipulated that Egypt was responsible for securing the 14 kilometers of the Axis with 750 Egyptian soldiers. You recently had an in-depth conversation with Dr. Mira Tsoref, who weighed in on what's happening now that is making Egypt so concerned. So what did she say? Egypt has uh, come forward with a number of proposals, understanding Israel's concern when it comes to the future, well, the current situation of the Philadelphia Corridor, that area, the buffer zone basically between the Gaza Strip and, and Sinai. But Israel has ignored all of them, and it keeps insisting that it wants to take full control of the of that axis. And what was interesting in talking to her is to understand the Egyptian point of view and all of this, and how it resonates with the in Egyptian culture and the Egyptian history, basically. Um, the Egyptians are very much opposed to Israel talking about taking control or occupying anything after, you know, Israel conquered Sinai in 67. 
1947, and I was given back to Egypt after peace agreement, after you know, long negotiations. And also the very wary of Palestinian refugees coming through the uh, corridor. Uh, and we know that Israeli officials, uh, including high-ranking politicians, have talked about displacing two million Gazans to Egypt, uh, which is obviously a non-starter. And um, in general, Israel has made a lot of diplomatic faux pas. In, since the war started with Egypt, basically. And Egypt is getting more and more irritated. They are uh, making this uh, also more and more obvious. Um, President Sisi didn't take a number of phone calls from uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in recent weeks. And uh, they have uh, made their concerns um, very loud. Uh, at The Hague, Israel uh, um, accused Egypt of withdrawing aid to the Gaza Strip. Um, I mean, just a series of, of things that shows that basically Israel is, uh, uh, yeah, accusing Egypt, uh, not always with evidence. Um, I mean, when they talk about uh, weapons being smuggled into Gaza from Egypt, there has to be uh, a basis to that because obviously the weapons uh, in Hamas hands have to come from somewhere. But other things like uh, Egypt withdrawing aid really is un- seems to be unfounded. One of the things that came through in reading the interview is that Egypt has really worked very hard in clearing the Sinai of terrorism, and they're trying to suppress all this kind of activity in in the mainland as well. And one of the concerns is, of course, that with the flood of uh, refugees, that Hamas itself would also come with them. And that seems to be one of the major concerns too, no? Correct. So there was an ISIS presence, uh, at least since 2014 in Sinai, that was first uh, fought by uh, local Bedouin tribes and then by the Egyptian army. And it's been a very bloody war that has gone on for basically a decade. And it's uh, taken Sisi a long time and a lot of blood to clear uh, Sinai of this uh, this Islamist presence uh, and to restore Sinai as a tourist destination. We know as Israelis, a lot of us like go regularly to Sinai on on vacation. And it's a a pretty safe area, at least the the part where Israelis go to. Uh, But for Sinai, for, for Sisi, it's very important not to let any Islamists uh, uh, take over Sinai. And we know that if Palestinian refugees were allowed to go into Sinai, Hamas members would go with them. And as it happened, uh, you know, in the uh, 60s and 70s with the Fedayeen, they would start launching attacks against Israel from there. And then the the IDF would retaliate and it would basically turn Sinai into a war zone. And uh, Sisi and no one else in Egypt really wants to see that happening. Sisi has really taken a strong stance against the Hamas terror group in in many ways. And one of the things that came out of your piece as well is that in 2014, he pioneered the use of flooding the Hamas terror tunnels. Right. So, yeah, we know that Sisi came to power after two years of uh, Mohammad Morsi, who was uh, a representative of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is affiliated with uh, Hamas. So during that time, there was a lot of uh, smuggling happening between Egypt and Gaza. Uh, when Sisi came to power, and basically when the Muslim Brotherhood was repe- repressed again, he made it very clear that it wouldn't, it would put an end to the smuggling to Gaza, and so he just, uh, you know, uh, went full power and just uh, flooded the tunnels with seawater. You know, we thought that we it was our original idea, but uh, it's been done almost a decade ago by Egypt, uh, apparently under Israeli suggestion, also at the time. Uh, but he said he didn't, you know, he didn't care. He got a lot of criticism from throughout the Arab world for bringing, for being a traitor to the Palestinian cause. He didn't care. Uh, he got uh, condemnation for poisoning the uh, drinking water in Gaza. He didn't care. Yeah, he just went ahead with it. 
There's a report in the Wall Street Journal that internal divisions among Hamas leaders are preventing the Palestinian terror group from backing a proposed hostage deal that would include a pause to the fighting in the Gaza Strip. Now, it appears that the stances of the leaders have as well flip-flopped. So, Luca, give us a little insight here. Break it down. So, you know, this, we, this part of the uh, Hamas leadership is in Gaza, hiding in tunnels, and part of the leadership is abroad, mostly in uh, Qatar, also in uh, Lebanon, maybe still in Turkey. Anyway, it, it, it used to be that there's some contact between them, but they kind of, like, um, formulate their own uh, positions. And we know before the first um, uh, truce between Israel and uh, Hamas in November, that um, the leadership abroad in Qatar was more exposed to foreign pressures and was uh, more inclined to uh, negotiate with Israel and come to a compromise, whereas the leadership in the tunnels in Gaza was uh, more like maximalist and uh, took them a longer time to 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 come to to an agreement and to a ceasefire. And now the situation seems to have flipped, basically because Hamas abroad have realized that there is no point in uh, uh, accepting a ceasefire since Israel is going to continue attacking until the group is completely eradicated. So they want a, a full uh, exchange of uh, hostages in return for all the release of all Palestinian prisoners. Whereas what's happening inside Gaza is that the leaders there, they see their family members and friends and, and Hamas members being killed on a daily basis. So they seem to be more inclined, according to this report that came out in the Wall Street Journal uh, a couple of days ago, they seem to be more inclined uh, to a temporary truce uh, in exchange for a gradual release of the hostages. And as you pointed out, yeah, this is an interesting flipping of the positions between the leadership inside Gaza and abroad. I guess the real question is who finally decides? Who's the person who decides? Is it the person in Gaza or the person abroad? Uh, yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, we had a report a couple of weeks ago that said that, uh, according to Hamas sources, ultimately it's the leadership in Gaza that takes the decisions. But, uh, you know, a lot of things are happening on the outside, and we know that the Qatari negotiators are also putting a lot of pressure on Hamas, and they have a say in this. So we'll see. Okay. Luca, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. We'll go to a short break. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Kanan, you recently spent time on Kibbutz Kfar Aza with uh, Shacha Schnorman and his wife Ayelet Cohen, who are the first two to move back there. So first of all, just set the scene for us. What were you seeing at Kfar Aza? You uh, drive up to Kfar Aza these days, one of the worst hit communities in the South, one in 10 residents either murdered or or abducted. And you, you expect the sort of sites that you see in other kibbutzim, devastation, ghost town. Well, there's that, but there's also a traffic jam at the entrance and another jam of people trying to get out because there are so many delegations now uh, coming in to uh, basically tour, rehabilitate, uh, document. And so... 
it, it looks like an open-air museum to what happened on uh, October 7th. And in that, in, in that setting, one couple decided to go back already uh, apparently uh, without fanfare on the, uh, in December. Shachar and Ayelet's therapeutic masseuse and a forklift operator who were living like the rest of the evacuees in the south from one apartment to the other. Actually, they had pretty good digs in Tel Aviv. But they decided to, to go back because Shachar was an emotional wreck and Ayelet couldn't sleep. And so they came gradually back for meals uh, in their veranda in the kibbutz uh, and ended up staying because Shachar's panic attacks seemed to dissipate. And uh, Ayelet could finally get a good night's sleep. They lived like this for, um, for, uh, for a good while, for about a month. Uh, and then their arrival started becoming known to all these delegations. And they beca- became sort of a, a pilgrimage site because they represent so much. And as I came in, Shachar took me around the kibbutz to show me what he knows all reporters want to see. The devastation and the, the police tape strung around crime scenes and the Zaka graffiti that is on practically every residential and, and non-residential, every building in Kfar Aza, marking how many dead survivors, Jews, non-Jews, this is a sort of a code, uh, spray patent right on the, right on the facade. So he showed me that, and then he took me to his veranda, and he made he made us a, a cup of espresso. And as he handed me this, Ayelet was in the kitchen pressing oranges because all the all the citrus trees of Faraz are just exploding with fruit. So she, in order not to waste kibbutznikim, Polish descended kibbutznikim after all, uh, she just she just she doesn't pick; she takes them from the floor. And presses them every morning, huge jugs, and gives out to the soldiers. She was doing that. He was handing me a cup of espresso. And as he handed it to me, we were sipping our espresso. And he says, this is an image of victory. I am an image of victory. Um, and in the in the kibbutznik mentality, that makes perfect sense. Because these are frontier kibbutzim. He, he was brought up, uh, he grew up in Shoval, another kibbutz not far away. Uh, and, and so there's this mentality that actually owning the land is not done militarily, but by farming it, by living on it. It definitely is. You also brought a fascinating story about soldiers who are mostly reservists who have been moved by the starving animals they've been seeing in Gaza and have rescued some. But rescue is kind of in the eye of the beholder sometimes, and especially when it comes to animals that have monetary value, like horses, for example. So pick this knot out a little bit for us. What did you see? So in Gaza right now, there are packs of feral dogs roaming the area, as there have been before the invasion, by the way. And um, on top of the terrible human misery that is, is part of the genocide trial against Israel, which it completely rejects um, against people. There's this another, other humanitarian catastrophe of dogs, cats, horses, uh, even even uh, other wild other livestock that is suffering because their owners have fled in Gaza or they never had owners and their source of, of food has just disappeared overnight. And so you have tens of thousands of reservists from, from Israel streaming into Gaza, and they find all kinds of, of, um, 
of, of really very difficult sights to, to, to see, like emaciated dogs. And some of them are purebreds who likely, that likely came from Israel because dog ownership is not a big thing. Pet ownership is not a big thing in, in Gaza. And so there's this tension between rescuing an animal uh, and and also retrieving it for its for its uh, for its owners, but there is also awareness that some of the animals likely have owners in Gaza, like the horses. There were three horses, at least that I know of, that were led from uh, Gaza City to Zikim by a soldier who got special permission from his commanding officers. He said the IDF is not familiar with this case. The horses he says, and the commanding officers, he said, say, um, were emaciated, having no food. And so it was either not loot them, in uh, quotation marks, and letting them die, or just um, getting them over to somewhere where they can be taken care of. And from an international law point of view, it's a pretty thin line. There aren't good definitions. The uh, Geneva Convention forbids pillage, but doesn't define pillage. And so it comes down to humanitarian principles of intent, uh, ownership, and each case is really its own microcosm and needs to be determined. Um, there, ha- there have been three cases of pillage, not of animals, uh, but of um, but, but of property, alleged pillage that are, is being looting, that is being investigated by um, the investigative military police, according to the IDF. Uh, so it's not it's not widespread according to the Israeli authorities at least, but there have been complaints about it. In the meantime, you know, each side is using this phenomenon for its arguments. You know, um, Israel with the ethos of the the most moral army in the world is saying, you know, look at our troops coming into fight terrorists, and you know, in the meantime, they rescue animals because that's who we are. And on the other side, look at the looting, pillaging genocidal Israelis. That's the kind of debate that we're seeing on social networks. It has caught the attention of, uh, of certain influential commentators about the conflict. Talking about social networks and debates, two French celebrities had an online row over the Israel-Hamas war, and it's taken kind of an unusual turn in attracting extensive media coverage that really highlights Everything about society, class warfare, gender issues, ageism, anti-Semitism, of course. So explain a little bit about this uh, row in France. Okay, so maybe we can go back to the origin of this um, conflict uh, online. What happened is a um, a very well-known TV presenter in France, Arthur, whose real name is Jacques Essebag, uh, a few days ago came out on Instagram, three million followers he has there, and said that, protested against the selection done by Forbes France, the magazine, who, you know, as we know, compiles these lists of influential and, and rich people. And in its 2023 list, it included a young lawyer, up-and-coming media personality called Rima Hassan. Uh, she's 31 years old, um, uh, a jurist, very outspoken, uh, came online in defense of Palestinians during the current operation. And he said that Forbes is basically celebrating anti-Semitism because, and, and terrorism by, by platforming her. And the reason for this was an interview, among other reasons, but one good reason, uh, compelling reason at least, uh, that he gave was um, a 
November 29 interview that uh, Hassan gave uh, in which she was uh, presented with a series of assertions. She had to say true or false. Uh, Hamas did a legitimate action on October 7. That was one of the questions. She said true. Uh, Israel has a right to defend itself. False. Uh, there's a, there's a, the two-state solution is a possibility. False. Um, and... She also called Israel genocide state, genocide apartheid state, all the usual rhetoric. And this is why Artur and his um, followers, supporters, protest against her selection. There's also a gala, uh, a very mediatized gala for Forbes that's about to take place in March. So anyone on the list is invited to this gala. You know, French the French people know how to throw a gala. So there's that. Um, and then... Uh, this touched off the usual storm on Twitter, and then it took an unusual turn because Hassan, instead of debating the points and explaining uh, what she meant and so forth, the sort of dynamic that we've seen in previous uh, playouts, um, she she just um, really harnessed identity politics rhetoric, calling Arthur a sexist, misogynistic boomer. Uh, who's using his wealth to silence uh, the, the, the new guard that, that is um, destined to replace the old one. Uh, that's the sort of arguments that she couched in, in dozens of, of tweets, and it really, really struck a chord with um, a, part of the, uh, a part of the intellectual elite of France. You saw well-known musicians, well-known te- television presenters, um, celebrating her reaction to Arthur and the media covered this L'Express Le Figaro well L'Express was actually pretty um, did a pretty decent job but Le, Le, Le Figaro uh, 20 minutes a lot of mainstream media kind of, of um, took over this framing of the narrative and it was very interesting to see the the uh, engagement stats on on both narratives because the Jewish side was was of course presenting its evidence for why Hassan is allegedly not um, an appropriate choice for the gala, for the list. Uh, And you really saw this, um, you really saw how in engagement stats online, the the identity politics arguments really really exploded whereas there was very limited traction to the other uh, to the other end of the spectrum now uh, just uh, one quick update um, that came in tonight Forbes scrapped the gala in March uh, citing um, uh, security reasons and the circumstances aren't right for it so Forbes realized that it wants to put some distance between itself and Hassan. But in any case, it's a fascinating encounter between the kind of of politics that we're probably going to see more of in French society and across the West and the sort of reactions that we've become accustomed to see until now. Uh, It's also supported by polls. Polling suggests that there is much more openness to the, well, frankly, Hamas narrative, but also Palestinian narrative, uh, on October 7 and Israel in younger generations than in older ones in France, which is already pretty critical of Israel to begin with in, in comparison to other countries. And as if I'm not mistaken, experiencing unprecedented numbers of anti-Semitic attacks this uh, past year, correct? Yes, there's been a quadrupling of recorded cases. How many cases on the ground, we of course don't know. But um, since they were quite high to begin with, 
uh, it's having some real-life effects on Jews on the ground, already um, a population that's jittery and uh, prone to leave France. So this has... We are really embarking on a new road for French Jews. And while this is happening, a new reality for French Jews post-October 7, and while this is happening, you're seeing signs that, well, at least some parts of the cultural elites in France don't have their backs. Kanan, thank you so much for all of your updates. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by the Podwaves. If you have any questions about this or any other episode, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. Thank you.